0: Greetings, everyone. As you know, on the Pentecost, immediately following the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, on that Pentecost, his disciples were gathered in Jerusalem to keep the feast, and God poured out his Spirit on the church at that time in a special way. And In a sense, that was the beginning of the church under the New Covenant, even though Jesus Christ had been, of course, preaching to a number of people and had gathered together those who were responsive to his message. And in that sense, the church had come together prior to that time. We have the opportunity to share in that same covenant, the New Covenant, and we do that through repentance and baptism as we enter into that covenant relationship with God and, with, of course, with Jesus Christ. And then God grants us the opportunity to have the Holy Spirit in that way that it was given to the church on the Feast of Pentecost over in Acts 2 and verse 38 the apostles had preached to a crowd of people in the temple on the Feast of Pentecost, and many of those people were convicted by what was said. In verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That is, they were convicted by the message and said to Peter and the rest of the the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the gift of the Holy Spirit is a promise that is made to those who repent, genuinely repent, and are baptized, and enter into the new covenant relationship with Christ, and they are promised the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, That doesn't mean that God's Spirit cannot be working with people prior to them reaching that point. Once you begin responding to God's Word, God can and does work with you. And in fact, I'm convinced that God, in fact, works with, in certain cases at least, works with people in various ways who are not even necessarily on the road to repentance. But if God has some particular use for a person, then he can reveal certain kinds of knowledge to them and things of that sort. But spiritual knowledge is available to those who are in a repentant spirit and are beginning on the road toward a more meaningful relationship with God. God can work with people, does work with people, leading them up to the point of the time where they're ready for baptism. And then once they reach that point, then God seals them with his spirit, as explained in Ephesians chapter 1. And there are a number of benefits that come with having received God's spirit in that way. One of those benefits is, in fact, that, that you become one of God's children, so to speak, and you are assured of salvation as long as you continue in faith. In fact, I didn't actually have this scripture in my notes, but since... We're discussing this point. Let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 1, and we will see how you are sealed, so to speak, with the Spirit of God. And this is predicated upon your believing the truth of God's Word, the gospel. And Paul was writing here to the Ephesian church, and he said that in him... Meaning in Christ, as you see in the previous verses, who he's referring to. In him, in Christ, this is verse 13, Ephesians 1. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. Notice it was after they heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. They trusted in Jesus Christ through the message of the gospel. In whom also, having believed, believed in Jesus Christ, believe the message of Jesus Christ, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So notice it says they were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, in the culture of the time, they did not have printing presses as we do today, but they did have correspondence, and they would write messages back and forth. And normally when someone wanted to deliver a message, to someone in a faraway place, they would write it out and, and roll it up in a scroll. And then that message would be sealed with a wax seal. And the hot wax would be poured on the scroll, and then it would be stamped with the mark or the seal of the person who was writing the message. And people generally, especially important officials and so forth, had signet rings, which contained the seal of that particular individual, or they might have various other types of seals. There was a roll seal as well and so forth that they would seal that document with. And the seal did several, accomplish several things at once. First of all, it provided security because as long as the seal was not broken, then there was no tampering with The document and it was genuine and uh, secondly the seal identified the owner and so the ownership of the document could be ascertained by the seal in the in a similar way when we are sealed by the Spirit of God we are stamped so to speak as the property of God now of course God owns everything but we are sealed in a special way with having God's spirit, we become, as Christ explained in John chapter 8, before we begin to enter into a special relationship with God that leads to salvation, we are slaves of sin. But when we begin walking according to God's word, we, and, and we repent, and we enter into that covenant with Christ, then he frees us. And we are then sons of God and no longer slaves to sin, but we become sons of God. And Christ said, a slave does not stay forever in the house, but a son abides forever. And as long as we remain God's children through that covenant relationship with Christ, then we are assured of salvation, as Paul goes on to explain. In verse 14, he says, of the Holy Spirit, who, or better translated would be which, is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Having the Holy Spirit, having been sealed with the Holy Spirit, is a guarantee of salvation until the redemption of the purchased possession. And so, as long as you remain faithful to God, then you are assured of salvation. Now, you do have to be faithful. We are in a period of testing and trial, and we can turn our backs on God. We could reject God and turn away from God, and God's Spirit can be removed. But as long as we remain faithful to the covenant, then we are assured of salvation, and this is a subject that I really is not my purpose to go into in complete detail to today, but that is one of the primary benefits of having received the Holy Spirit. You might ask, what in fact is the Holy Spirit? Now many people are confused about what the Holy Spirit is because of deceptions that have been spread abroad for many centuries. And, of course, some years after the church was established in the New Testament era, eventually various ideas became popular about God's nature, and eventually the Trinity doctrine emerged. It actually took several centuries for it to to develop fully, and it was not necessarily entirely new. Many pagan religions had various ideas about a triune God and there were many trinities, for example, in the Egyptian religion and other various pagan religions and that was really where the idea of the trinity originated. But the idea of of God as a trinity emerged where the Holy Spirit was conceived of as a person within the Godhead. But That concept is not found in Scripture. What we do find in Scripture is that the Holy Spirit is an aspect of God's nature. The Holy Spirit is a part of what God is. Now, this shouldn't be too difficult for us to understand because, in fact, you have a similar nature because every human being is not just flesh and blood, but also we each have a spirit your spirit is a part of what you are you would not exist without your spirit you would not live without your spirit and in a similar way God's spirit is not distinct from God any more than your spirit is distinct from you God's spirit is God and it is God exercising his power wherever he wills through that spirit The Holy Spirit has been described as God at work, as as that term is often used in the scriptures. And God the Father and Jesus Christ live in us, they act in us, they work in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ literally lives in us through the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And so when we speak of something being done through the Holy Spirit, it is not a separate person from God the Father and Jesus Christ doing it. It is God the Father and Jesus Christ working to accomplish whatever they intend to accomplish through the power of the Holy Spirit that they share. And that Spirit proceeds from God, and it is given to us. And when we have God's Spirit dwelling in us, we have God dwelling in us through that spirit. We have God's nature in us. In wow. addition to human nature, we have God's nature dwelling in us. And there's there are a number of benefits that are conferred on us through that spirit of God dwelling in us. And I want to go through in this sermon just five of those benefits, and, and there are many more that we could uh, discuss, but I don't really... You know, I don't want to take the time to discuss everything. We don't have that much time (laughs) in this service because your time is limited to a couple of hours. But there are some specific things I want to point your attention to in terms of benefits that we derive from having God's Spirit dwelling in us. The first thing I want to mention is comfort. Jesus promised his disciples that he would send them a gift Once he departed from the earth over John 14, John 14, verse 15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments and I will pray the father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. I believe in the King James version, this word that's translated helper. I'm reading from the new King James. I believe it's translated comforter and it's talking about the Holy Spirit. As he goes on to say in verse 17, even the spirit of truth, whom, or which, and by the way, when the translators put whom in here in reference to spirit, that is uh, really an interpretation. It's not a real, it's not a, a valid translation because in the Greek, the word spirit, pneuma is neuter and generally, in translating a neuter word, you would use a neuter pronoun, which in this case would be which, not whom, but which. So that would be a more accurate translation. I believe in the King James, it is translated which. The spirit of truth, which the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for the, uh, the he dwells with you and will be in you. So Notice the Holy Spirit was already, in a sense, with them. But Jesus said, it will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Now, the word translated helper here, or comforter as it is, I believe, in the King James Version, is perikletos. That's the Greek word. And the word literally means one who is called alongside. One who is called alongside. And it is used in various contexts of an advocate, a helper, an intercessor, or a comforter, or all of those things. It has multiple implications and meanings, and in a way is a somewhat difficult word to translate into English because of all of its uh, related meanings, but comforter is one word that sort of conveys the essence of what this word means. And uh, cognate words, similar words, words of the same root, are used in the New Testament several places in the sense of comfort or consolation. Through his word and other actions involving his spirit, God provides comfort and consolation to those who he is dealing with Notice over in Isaiah 61, Isaiah 61, this is a prophecy of Jesus, the Messiah. And in Isaiah 61, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is referring directly to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So we see here several references to the concept of comforting and consoling those who need to be comforted, who need to be encouraged, who need to be strengthened. And that is one of the powerful benefits of the Holy Spirit. It can strengthen us in times of trial and difficulty and sorrow. It can give us hope when there's little reason to have hope. And these are important benefits for those of us who have various situations come up in life, as we all do. And there will be times in life for all of us when we need comforting and strengthening. In fact, we really need it every day. Certainly we need the strength that comes with with the advocacy, you might say, of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 9, verse 31, Acts chapter 9 and verse 31, this is talking about a particular situation in the church where, as was often occurring during the era of the New Testament church. The church had been under pressure and persecution. And uh, in verse 31, we break into the story here of how Paul in particular had begun to preach the gospel. And in verse 31, it says, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. Now they had had peace, which came after a period of severe persecution. And it went on to say walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. They had been under pressure. They'd been under persecution. Many had been driven out of their homes. they had lost their property. Some had been killed, but then they had a period of peace of relief from that particular circumstance. For a period of time and they were comforted by the Holy Spirit it says. Certainly in that particular situation they needed comforting. They needed assurance. They needed the consolation that comes with God's spirit. In Second Corinthians chapter 1 as you know Paul was often persecuted during his ministry and suffered greatly various times because he was preaching a message which people did not really appreciate or want to hear quite often. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulation. Now, we in this era, this age, have not been subjected to the kind of suffering that many people down through history in the church have been subjected to. It happened many times to Paul, where he was imprisoned, where he was threatened, where he was beaten, where they tried to kill him and thought they did kill him. So he says, God, though, is one who comforts us in all our tribulations, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. So to the extent that God requires us to suffer, he also provides comfort and consolation through the Spirit of God. Those who mourn, after a godly fashion, their promised comfort. Notice what Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount. And maybe you haven't really thought about this much, but I think it is important to understand this promise. In Matthew 5, and verse 4, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, especially those who mourn because of their commitment and faith toward God they shall be comforted. One occasion of mourning that we experience, hopefully we all experience, is the mourning that comes in a godly fashion through the sorrow that produces repentance. When we see that we have failed, we have transgressed God's laws, and we become mournful, we become sorry that we have behaved in a manner that's displeasing to God. And we should have that kind of mourning when we do sin, the kind of mourning that produces righteousness through repentance. And the sorrow that produces repentance and righteousness will also, at least it should, and if we are genuinely repenting in faith, it will bring comfort eventually this happened in the corinthian church is is recorded as you know in the corinthian church there were a number of different problems and one of the problems that paul addressed in 1 corinthians was a flagrant sin that was being committed involving adultery and incest and he commanded the church to cast out that person who was sinning did his fellowship the person until the person repented. Well, the person did repent. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul instructed the church to receive the one who had sinned, once again, into their fellowship. But it wasn't only that individual who needed to repent, it was the entire church, because of, of their tolerating that kind of situation, as well as various other things that Paul had written to them about in 1 Corinthians in second corinthians chapter 7 paul addresses their repentance and he says in uh, in verse 10 of chapter 7 of 2nd corinthians for godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation not to be regretted but the sorrow of the world produces death you know we we can be sorry for situations we find ourselves in in various ways and some of those ways In fact, the most common type of sorrow that people experience when their bad behavior produces catastrophe is they're sorry that they're caught in their situation, but they're not necessarily sorry in terms of wanting to change their behavior or their attitudes. That is not a godly sorrow. But there's another kind of sorrow, which is you... Sorrow before God, not just because you're suffering because of your misbehavior, but you're sorrowing because you want to get your relationship with God corrected and you want to change the way you have conducted yourself. And so he says, Godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation. For observe this very thing in verse 11, that you sorrowed after after a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, and all those things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, but for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more for Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Paul had sent Titus to, to deal with the, the situation. But after the repentance, they had received comfort, and they had been encouraged and strengthened through their repentance. And that is one of the benefits of repentance, is the comfort that follows and the assurance that comes with the knowledge of truth and God's spirit. Over in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 11, Isaiah 51, verse 11, this is talking about after the tribulation, after the day of the Lord, when millions of people, billions of people will have died and the plagues and the curses that will have been poured out on the earth, the war that will have consumed the earth during the period of the tribulation and the day of the Lord. And there will have been millions of people, Israelites especially, who will have been in captivity. Those who survive will have been kept in captivity for three and a half years. And they will be in a sorry state. They will have been humbled. They will have suffered every kind of abuse imaginable, and they will need comforting. In verse 11 here, it says, The ransomed of the Lord shall return. It's talking about those who have been redeemed from captivity. And come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads, and they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, even I, am he who comforts you, who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and of the son of a man who will be made like grass? God will have punished those people, our people, our nations, that then He will, once they have been corrected, He will be prepared to comfort them because God is a loving and a merciful God. Through God's Word, we are comforted. As we study God's Word, as we read it, as we drink in of its promises and the encouragement that comes through studying the Scriptures, we can find comfort in our lives. We live in an evil world, a world where many people are living lives that are hopeless and meaningless. But knowing the truth brings comfort. It can encourage us to look To the future with a positive outlook, even in spite of the evils that we know are coming. In Psalm 119, verse 49, Psalm 119, verse 49 says, Remember the word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word gives me life. The proud have me in great derision, yet I do not turn aside from your law. I remembered your judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself. Sometimes if you find yourself despairing over things that are happening in your own life or your family life or in the world and you see the wheels flying off everything, so to speak, you see disaster on the horizon, turn to God's word and receive comfort from the promises of God's word that assure us that despite all the evils of this age, there is hope for a better future, one that we can share in. In verse 76, it says, let I pray your merciful kindness be for my comfort. We need to see God as merciful and gracious and just. We need to appreciate God's mercy toward us and be encouraged and comforted by that. Let I pray your merciful kindness Be for my comfort according to your word to your servant. Let your tender mercies come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. First Thessalonians four, first Thessalonians four and verse thirteen, Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now when a loved one dies, certainly that's a time for mourning and sorrow. And it's natural that we should sorrow in such a time. But we should not sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus or those who have died for this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep, Sleep being here put here for death. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. As a minister, I've had many occasions where I've had to conduct funerals for people who had died, sometimes people who were in the church, others who were not. But we have a hope which is not shared by many other people in the world. We have the hope and assurance of the resurrection. We understand God's purpose and plan. We understand that everyone is going to have an opportunity to be included in that plan. Everyone is going to have a full and complete opportunity to be a member of the family of God and to to live forever for eternity. And that death is going to be abolished and we can comfort one another with those words as we are comforted through the scriptures by that assurance, that hope of the resurrection. So that's one of the benefits of the Holy Spirit that we enjoy. Another benefit is truth itself. The Spirit of God as in John 14 and verse 17 is referred to as the Spirit of Truth. It is the source of truth. There is such a close relationship between the truth of God and His Spirit that Jesus said that the Word of God is Spirit. The Word of God is spirit, and it is spirit, in effect, in a very real sense. And the Word of God that we have preserved in the Scriptures are given to us through God's Spirit. The words were inspired in those that God used to deliver His Word by the Holy Spirit. They were directed, they were moved, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, to write the words that were written that are preserved in Scripture. In John 16, in verse 13, John 16, verse 13, Jesus said to his closest disciples, he said, however, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. What he's saying is that that the Holy Spirit will convey the message of God. In verse 14, it says, He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. And all things that Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. The Spirit of God is what inspired the apostles to do the work that they had been commissioned to do and to record the message that they have recorded in the Scriptures and others that were used in addition to the original apostles. Over in Second Timothy, Paul is writing about the Scriptures to Timothy, and he said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, he said, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Scriptures are inspired by God, and they're inspired through the Spirit of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction for instruction and in righteousness that the man of god may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work in second peter chapter 1 verse 20 2 peter 1 verse 20 it says knowing this first that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man but holy men of god spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the word of God that we have is a gift that comes through the Holy Spirit. And not only is the word itself a gift of the Holy Spirit, but so also is the understanding of that word. We as human beings do not have the capacity to really fully understand God's word of ourselves through our own capacities intellectually. It requires the Spirit of God working with our minds to reveal to us spiritual understanding, the real understanding of God's Word. The key to having that knowledge available to us is repentance. And once we hear God's Word, His rebuke, His reproof, then if we respond in a positive way, God will make His Spirit available he will make the knowledge of his word available. As we read in Proverbs 1 and verse 23, turn up my reproof, in other words, repent. Surely I will will pour out my spirit on you and I will make my words known to you. And those two things go together. God pouring out his spirit and making his word known. In other words, giving spiritual understanding. And as you repent, as you apply God's word in your life, you receive greater and greater understanding and help as you search out the meaning of the Scriptures. Now, there are other things you have to do, studying God's Word and and various other things that uh, are involved in that that I won't go into in detail right now. But the key is repentance and applying yourself to understanding and God's Spirit will then guide you. As Jesus said to his disciples, the God Spirit will guide you into the knowledge of the truth. In First Corinthians chapter two, Paul writes about that, First Corinthians two, Paul said in verse nine, concerning the mysteries of God's word, as it is written, Eye is not seen, is second or First Corinthians two and verse nine. I has not seen nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Human beings have all sorts of ideas about the afterlife or about the purpose of human existence. But the true purpose of human existence is virtually unknown and virtually unthought of by most people. Most people have no idea why they're alive or that the true purpose of human beings is is to become literally sons of God in the family of God. Spiritual beings that share the very nature of God himself and will live for eternity as God himself lives, that will have God's life, be sharing the very life of God. To most people, even those who claim to be Christians, that would be blasphemy. In fact, uh, the church has been accused of blasphemy, blasphemy for teaching that doctrine. Jesus Christ himself was accused of blasphemy for saying that he was the son of God. That's not something that is known through just a human intellect or even guesswork. In verse 10, it says, God has revealed them, the things that are prepared for those who love him, to us through his spirit. He's revealed these things to us through his Spirit. Now, it comes through His Word, of course, but also His Spirit not only is directly involved in, as we've seen, producing the Word, but also giving us an understanding of it. God has revealed these things to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. One of the problems with the Trinity is nobody can really understand it because it's completely illogical and utterly nonsensical. And so they say, well, this is just too deep for anybody to understand, as indeed it is, since, you know, it's pretty hard to understand things that are utterly self-contradictory. But (laughs) you can't really understand it because our human minds are too feeble to really understand much about God. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says through the power of God's Spirit, we can understand the deep things of God. We can understand a great deal about God and His nature through the guidance of the Holy Spirit and His Word, directing our understanding. Goes on to say here in verse fourteen or verse eleven, What man is he who knows the things of man except the spirit of the man which is in him? It is because we have the human spirit that we are able to know the things of a man. Now, as you know, Mr. Armstrong commented on this at length at certain times about the kind of research that had been done on various uh, creatures and found that in respect to physical comparisons alone, there's not a great deal of difference between the human brain and the brains of, let's say, uh, higher primates and, and even some other creatures. But there's a vast difference in human intellect as opposed to any other creature on the earth. What accounts for that? Well, none of the other creatures have the same spirit. They don't have the spirit that God gave to human beings. And it tells us that what gives us the capacity to know the things of a man is the spirit which was given to us as a part of our nature. But He goes on to say in verse 11, Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Notice what he's saying. We've received God's Spirit so that we can know the things that have been given to us by God. That's where that knowledge is comes from, that capacity to understand God's word as we repent and walk in faith toward God. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but that which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The things that we know, that we understand of God's purpose and plan are utter nonsense to most people. That understanding is given to us through the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 16, 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 16, Paul is talking about how Most of the Israelites under the Old Covenant didn't really understand the message of God's Word. In fact, he says in verse 15, he says, even to this day when Moses is read, that is the writings of Moses, the Old Testament, a veil lies on their heart, a veil of spiritual blindness, and that spiritual blindness exists because of their refusal to repent. And he goes on to comment about that. He says in verse 16, Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, that is, when one turns to God in repentance, then the veil is taken away. When one turns to the Lord. Now, this is an important principle or key to understanding that we need to be clear about, is that you're not going to understand the truth until you begin to repent and to and to listen to God and to take God's word seriously. But we, if you turn to the Lord, then God will take that veil away. And it says, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There is freedom, as Jesus said. If you walk in my word, then I will make you free. And if I make you free, you will be free indeed, he said. And God is that spirit that gives a spiritual understanding. Another benefit of having God's spirit is love. Now, in 1 John 4 and verse 8, we're told that God is love. God is love. Love is so so much a part of God's nature, it is such a all-encompassing characteristic of God that John was inspired to write that God is love. His nature, in a, in a sense, can be epitomized by the concept of love. The Greek word for that kind of love, the kind of love that expresses God's nature, is agape. And that word is used in the, in the, as it's used in the New Testament, is the divine love that proceeds from God and that is characteristic of his nature. Now, we tend to associate love with emotion. And when people use this word love, often they're talking about feelings and emotion. But the love that characterizes God's nature is not just emotion. Now, there may be emotion associated with it, but that kind of love itself is not just emotion. It is much deeper than that. The love, in fact, the love that proceeds from God often goes against our natural emotions. It runs contrary to human nature and contrary to our emotions. What kind of emotions do you have if someone cuts you off in traffic? Do you have feelings of kindness toward that person just naturally and normally? <laughs> what if someone threatens you or steals from you or or does something harmful to you what kinds of emotions does it produce over in matthew 5 in verse 43 notice what jesus said matthew 5 verse 43 he said you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy and by the way this isn't something that is in the scriptures this is just something that they've been told Verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, is this normally what one would do just based on human emotion? Do you just naturally love your enemies? Do you just naturally bless those who curse you? is it normal and natural emotion to do good to those who hate you to pray for those who abuse you or persecute you no i don't i don't think it is at least if that's your emotions you have emotions completely different from mine because that's not how i would normally humanly really, humanly react and i don't believe you would either but nevertheless this is what jesus christ said we're to do this is what it means to love as God loves. Because it goes on to say that you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than Others do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That kind of love comes from God. It's not a part of our human makeup. God loves even the worst of sinners. He sent Jesus Christ to die for mankind in a state of rebellion against him. In Romans 5 and verse 8, Romans 5 and verse 8, Paul says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ didn't die for us because we were righteous. He died for us because we were sinners. If we were righteous, he wouldn't have needed to die for us. But God demonstrated His love for us in that He died for us while we were enemies, sinners, rebels. We're told that God loves all mankind. Jesus Christ died to provide an opportunity for salvation for every human being. In John 3 and verse 16, it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Why did he do it? Because he loved the world. Now, love the world means he loved the people in the world, not the way the world was, not the evil in the world, but God loves the people he created, and he desires their salvation. And one of the things that God did to make possible salvation for human beings, all human beings, was to die for them, to give his life for them so their sins could be forgiven. William Barclay wrote a book called New Testament Words in which he goes into detail, uh, a detailed explanation of the meaning of a number of key Greek words in the New Testament and spends several pages on various words describing how they're used in the New Testament. One of the words that he writes about in his book is agape. And he says of this word, agape, and how it's used in the New Testament, he said he describes agape as unconquerable benevolence, invincible goodwill. It is not simply a wave of emotion. It is a deliberate policy of life. It is a deliberate achievement and conquest and victory of the will. If we are to have the love of God, it will be through an exercise of will and a deliberate choice that comes through the power of God's Spirit, working with our mind, working with God's Spirit. And it requires God working in us to enable us to have that kind of love. The love that comes from God is defined by his commandments. The commandments of God tell us how to love God and how to love our neighbor. Over in Matthew 22, Jesus was talking about this. He was asked a question, Matthew 22 and verse 35. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The entirety of God's word is predicated on these principles of divine love. Love toward God and love toward neighbor. That's the motivating principle behind the entirety of God's law. And for that matter, the entirety of his word. By the way, his word is law. Deuteronomy 11 and verse 1. And this is uh, something that God told Israel over and over in principle in different ways. Deuteronomy 11 and verse 1. He said to the Israelites, Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments always. And over and over again, as you read through the scriptures, including the writings of Moses, you find this same formula where loving God is directly associated with his commandments, keeping his commandments. Because that's how you love God. That's how you, you exercise and demonstrate your love toward God is through obeying his word, his laws. John 15. This is also expressed many times in the New Testament. Of course, many ministers who claim to represent Christ tell you will tell you that God's commandments are done away, that you don't have to pay any attention to God's commandments because they were all done away with under the new covenant, which is a lie. But notice here it says, John 15 verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in in my love, just as I've kept my commandments and abide in his love. And uh, Jesus said this not only then, but a number of other places, the same ideas expressed again. And over and over again, we find love associated with the keeping of the commandments of God because that's what love is. That's how love is defined. In 2 John 1 and verse 6, 2 John 1 and verse 6 says, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. We see here that love is defined as walking according to God. The commandments of God. And that love is given to us through the power of God's Spirit. God's Spirit empowers us to live by those laws. It is through the Spirit of God that God grants us that love. Romans 5 and verse 5, Romans 5 and verse 5, it says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And if we have love abiding in us, if we have love for one another, if we have love for God, if we have love for other people, it is because God's Spirit has placed that love in us and is empowering us to express it. Galatians 5, it is specifically named as one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5 and verse 22, it says the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. The very first thing mentioned here as one of the fruits of the Spirit of God is love. Again, having that kind of love is not natural to us. It's something that we must seek from God. And I would encourage you to go to God in your prayers on a regular basis and ask God to grant you his love. Ask God when you feel resentment or bitterness towards someone who's done something wrong. Ask God to purge from your heart any malice or bitterness toward anyone for any reason whatsoever. Because that's not godly to have hatred and bitterness. I don't care what uh, injustice may have been done to you. We all suffer injustices at various times, but we can't allow those things to cause us to become bitter and hateful toward others. Ask God to to help you get over those feelings of bitterness if you have them uh, and anger and hate if you experience those things and replace it with his divine love through the power of his spirit dwelling in you. Another benefit of having God's spirit is power. God's spirit is, among other things, it is power. It is the power of God. And it is God's power working in you if you will allow it to. Notice what Jesus said to his disciples shortly before his ascension into heaven in Acts 1 and verse 6. In Acts 1 and verse 6, this was after Jesus' death and resurrection. And it says, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons, which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to uh, to, to the end of the earth. Now, Jesus Christ had given to his apostles and to his church a commission to take the gospel to the world. But how are they to do that? They were to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. It was the power of the Holy Spirit motivating, inspiring, and guiding them that enabled them to fulfill the commission that they had been given. It's the same power that God makes available to us to accomplish the work that we have today, which is essentially the same work, taking the gospel to the world, And as Jesus said, making disciples of all nations and teaching them to obey God. That's our mission. That's our calling as God's people, as God's church. And if we're going to accomplish that, and to the extent that we will accomplish it, our part in it, it will be through the power of God's Spirit. In Acts 4 and verse 29, Acts 4 and verse 29, apostles began to do what Jesus had told them to do, and they were immediately subject to persecution. And here in verse 29 of chapter 4 of Acts, it says, Now, Lord, look on their threats, those who were opposing their work, and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And having been filled with the Holy Spirit, they spoke the word of God with boldness. And we today carry on that mission given to the church to speak the the word of God with boldness through the power of God's spirit. Chapter 5, verse 12. Chapter 5, verse 12. It says, Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all of one accord in Solomon's porch. And then it talks about how the church increased in verse verse 15, so that they brought the sick out to the streets, laid them on beds and couches, and at and at. Uh, at least and that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on them and uh, many were, uh, as it goes on to explain, were healed and had demons cast out of them and so forth as God empowered them through the Holy Spirit as they did the work that God had commissioned them to do. Now in chapter eight and verse six, chapter eight and verse six it says, the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did, and Philip had uh, had gone, uh, gone to Samaria to preach the message of the gospel, and uh, in verse 7, it says, Unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed. Many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom They all gave heed from the least to the greatest saying, this is the great power of God. Now, this Simon had worked false miracles to to mislead and deceive people. But he saw that greater miracles were being performed by Philip. And then the apostles came down, as it says in verse 15, to lay hands on the people who believed the, uh, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And uh, it says in verse 18, when Simon saw that through the laying on the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So we see that the power of God was given to the apostles whatever power was necessary to do his work, whatever, whatever manifestations of that power were appropriate for a particular purpose that served God at that time was given to them. And in a similar way, God will give us whatever power is necessary to accomplish the work that he wants us to do. Now, we're not necessarily all going to go around laying hands on people and healing people. Perhaps none of us will. Jesus said there was none greater born of women than John the Baptist, and yet he worked no miracles. But his job was to proclaim a message preparing the way for the coming of Jesus Christ. Miracles are not the only way that God's power is manifested. It's one way, but not the only way. But whatever work is done that is accomplishing God's purpose, especially in terms of preaching the gospel and spreading the message of his word, that is done through the power of God's Spirit. Of course, overcoming our nature having the power to do that is also a gift given through the spirit of god and god gives various gifts to those of us in his church depending on his will and his purpose for each of us this is discussed over in first corinthians chapter 12 verse 5 first corinthians 12 verse 5 paul says there are differences of Ministries, but the same Lord. There are different, diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit, in verse 4. Differences of ministries, but the same Lord, and there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. In other words, we don't all have the same job to do. We don't all have the same mission. Individually, I mean, collectively, we've got... The same mission that we share, but but individually, we each have different functions that we fulfill in the church. But nevertheless, it's the same spirit that works in all of us to accomplish what God wants accomplished. The manifestation of the spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the, th- through the same spirit to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of hearing by the same Spirit, uh, healing, rather, by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he or God wills so we shouldn't look down on someone else if we have a particular gift because that person doesn't have the same gift he has he or she has another gift whatever it might be and Paul doesn't mention every single gift that people are given by the spirit these are examples of different gifts that people might have but but all are important and all serve their purpose in fulfilling God's purpose and plan. As it says in verse 12, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that body being many are one. So also is Christ. God works through various people with diversities of gifts, but all from the same spirit and serving the same overall purpose. In 2 Timothy 1, 2 Timothy 1 and verse six paul said therefore i remind you to stir up the gift of god which is in you through the laying on of my hands he's talking here about the spirit of god which came evidently at the time of baptism For god has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and a sound mind notice the spirit of god is a spirit among other things of power as well as of love and a sound mind. And Paul told Timothy that we were to stir up that spirit, to stir up that gift. One of the uh, things that God's spirit is likened to in the scriptures is a fire. And uh, if a fire is left to itself, it will eventually burn out. if If you have a campfire, a pile of wood that you've set on fire, and you just let it go, eventually it's going to burn up all the wood and will we'll be quenched. To keep that fire going, you've, you've got to stir it up and you've got to add fuel to it. And uh, in the same way, God's spirit in us is something that has to be fed, it has to be nurtured, and has to be stirred up. And we do that through prayer and Bible study and fasting and through our uh, communion with God which stirs up that spirit and keeps that blaze, so to speak, alive. And as we do that, we will be able to accomplish God's purpose because his power will be working in us through that spirit. Over in Galatians 5, verse 22, I read part of this earlier, but going on with it, he says, the fruit of the spirit is love joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. We are to be walking in the Spirit of God and manifesting these gifts of God's Spirit. As we are empowered to do with God's help. Over in Romans 8, Paul also writes about how God's Spirit makes a difference in our lives. In Romans 8 and verse 1, he says, There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we need to ask ourselves Am I walking according to the flesh or according to the Spirit? because that makes all the difference in our lives and even in our future. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. God's spirit can free us from slavery to our corrupt human nature because it can give us the power to overcome it. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son In the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So with the Spirit of God empowering us, we can fulfill the requirements of God's law. We can live according to it, which we cannot do through our own mere human nature, because Paul goes on to say, verse 5, those who live according to the flesh set their minds in the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. And notice that it's up to us where we focus our thoughts. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because The carnal mind, that is the normal, natural, human, fleshly mind, is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In other words, if you only have your fleshly nature to rely on, you cannot please God because that nature is not subject to the law of God, and it cannot be of by itself. It requires the power of God's Spirit for us to overcome that nature and serve God in a way pleasing to Him. In verse 13, it says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice it is through the power of the Spirit of God that we put to death the deeds of the flesh. In other words, we overcome them. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So if we want to be in God's kingdom as sons of God, we have to be led by God's Spirit. And we're led by God's Spirit as we make the right choices and resist temptations and overcome them through the power of that Spirit. Now, one of the things we need to do to do that is to ask God on a regular basis for that spirit. Ask God for his spirit. How many times when you pray to, to God, do you say, God, empower me through your spirit. Help me to do what I need to do to please you. Notice what Jesus said in Luke 11 and verse 13, he said, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If you want to be more like Christ, if you want to have the power to overcome your fleshly nature, ask God for his Spirit and keep on asking on a regular basis God will give it to you and you will be able to benefit from his spirit the final thing that I want to cover is a benefit of God's spirit really ties in with what we've been discussing and that is self-control one of the fruits of the spirit mentioned there in Galatians 5 verse 22 is self-control and We read in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7 that God's spirit is the spirit of a sound mind. That same Greek expression could also be translated self-control or discipline. God's spirit is a, and of course that goes together, I mean, the the concept is the same. A a sound mind, a person who has a sound mind is one who's exercising self-control or or in self-discipline. And so we are obligated as Christians to exercise self-control. In other words, not be enslaved to our fleshly passions, but to control those things and to control our conduct and our behavior through directing our thoughts in the proper channels. In Second Peter chapter 1, Peter mentions this also. In 2 Peter 1 and verse 6, Peter said that we are to add to knowledge self-control, among other things that he's mentioning here in this context. We live in a world which is woefully act, uh, lacking in self-control. We live in a world where millions are enslaved to addictions of various kinds, drug addictions, smoking addictions, drinking and other addictions that they lack any control over. We live in a world where people are addicted to bad habits, to uncontrolled emotions and various lusts. And much of the misery that exists in the world can be attributed to simply a lack of self-control. Many broken marriages, diseases, violence, being victimized by religious deception or other deceptions, all in some way to do with a lack of self-control. And so if we are wise, we will learn to exercise restraint. We will learn to exercise moderation. We will learn to uh, control our emotions, not be carried away with passions, or uncontrolled emotions, or euphoria, or be ruled by fleshly appetites, drawn by our lusts that will lead us into difficulties and trials and catastrophes. In Proverbs 25 and verse 28, Proverbs 25 and and verse 28, it says, "'Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls.'" Now, a city without walls is defenseless and so also is one who does not exercise restraint or moderation or temperance or self-control. So we cannot allow ourselves to be ruled by our emotions or by our lusts or appetites. We need to be ruled by God's word, by his laws, as we exercise self-control in our lives through the help of the holy spirit so these are five gifts of or five benefits i should say that come with having the holy spirit as i mentioned it's not intended to be exclusive these are just five of of a, a number of other benefits we receive from having god's spirit but we need to be very thankful that god has made his spirit available to us and we need to be striving to allow that spirit to work in us so that we can and will be led by God's spirit so that we can have happier and more fulfilling lives and so that we can inherit God's kingdom when Jesus Christ comes in all his glory.